My son is uh, brilliant. He's probably going to be an engineer or a scientist. And I know that's probably where his life is headed. He's got like a photographic memory, but I also want him to play sports. And so I knew since he has such a visual, he's such a visual learner. I mean, if he sees something, he memorizes it, he internalizes it. So I wanted him, uh, first of all, I wanted him to play baseball. So I was like, how can I get Silas to play baseball? And it, it was easy. It worked. I said, I know he's going to watch the greatest baseball movie ever made. You can't argue with me about this. The Sandlot. Greatest baseball movie, come on, ever made. So after watching The Sandlot, he was amped. He was ready. He, like, he was going to play baseball. Might not have been the greatest parenting move in the world. Those little kids on the sandlot, they cussed more than I realized or more than I remembered. Uh, but it did the trick. He wanted to play, okay? So that worked for baseball. So then I thought, you know what? I also want him to play basketball. I wanted to play basketball. So we watched the greatest kids movie ever made for basketball, and that is none other than Space Jam. Come on, if you don't like Space Jam or if you've never seen Space Jam, the original one with Michael Jordan, you gotta go and watch it. There's something about the opening credits of Space Jam. You know, the music comes in, everybody get up, it's time to slam now. We got a real jam going down. Okay, the song is fire, it's awesome, and it shoots to all these scenes, uh, all these clips of like Michael Jordan when he was in high school, uh, not high school, but college in the NBA, and it's him just dunking and slamming, and he's just, he's killing it, and it gets you so hyped to this day it does. So I got Silas into it. We watch that movie all the time, like sometimes multiple nights in a row, he's watching Space Jam. So we got him a basketball goal for Christmas, and so he was all about it. He was all about the basketball goal, and uh, but you see, there was one thing. Because when Silas is watching Space Jam, he is seeing Michael Jordan just slam it. I mean, he's flying through the air. And so when Silas gets a basketball goal, he thinks that he should be able to do what Michael Jordan does. He thinks that he should be able to slam it and dunk it because that's what Jordan does. That's what I'm going to do. But the only problem is Silas is five years old. He can't jump that high yet. So here's what he asks me to do. He says all the time, he said, Dad, can we lower the goal? Can we just lower the goal so I can get up there? So hold on a second. I'm going to lower this goal. So I lower the goal for Silas. That way he can get up there and he can slam it and uh, he can do what Michael Jordan does. But you see, the only problem with me lowering the goal for Silas is that the game of basketball is played at regulation height. It's not played with a lowered rim. It's not played where it makes it easy for anyone to just come up and dunk it like Michael Jordan. The reality is if I let Silas always play on a lowered rim, if I always let him play with the rim lowered, he will never know the reality of what it's really like. He'll never understand the standard of what it's really like to play on a regulation goal. He won't know how to really play when it really counts when he gets in a game. And here's what I've come to realize about people, especially when it comes to Jesus. If we're not careful, we will think that when Jesus came, that he actually lowered the rim 
that he relaxed the standards, that, that he made it so easy for everyone to get into the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> but see, the problem is heaven is not a place of relaxed standards. The reality is, last time I checked, there's no sin in heaven. Heaven is where the absolute rule and reign of God, God's will is fully, uh, it's fully blown. It's not impeded. It's not stopped. It's not blocked. It's not hindered. There is no sin in heaven. And remember, heaven's not just where you go when you die. Heaven is what Jesus came to bring here on the earth. And when he came to bring it here on the earth, he did not lower the standards so any one of us could just, you know, we could just, oh, you know, live out the, the, the regulations and the will of God. Jesus did not lower the standard. In fact, that's what we're talking about today is what was Jesus's thoughts on the Old Testament? What was Jesus' thoughts on scriptures? What was Jesus's thoughts on the law and the prophets? And that's where we're gonna pick up and read here in Matthew chapter five and verse 17. Listen what Jesus says. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but I have come to fulfill them. For truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not even enter the kingdom of heaven. So what does Jesus say right there? Jesus said, I didn't come to relax any of the commandments. Some people thought he had. Some people thought he had come to lower the standards a little bit. Jesus didn't come to lower the standards. And if we're not care careful, we'll hear scriptures like Ephesians 2, 8, 9, where it says, for grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. And see, we'll take a scripture like that sometimes and we think it means that our behavior no longer matters to God. We think grace means that the standard has been lowered, that we have an excuse to live however we wanna live and it's all covered by grace. But the same person who wrote Ephesians 2, 8, 9, Paul, he wrote Romans 6 and he says, well then should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. By no means. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? My brothers and sisters, grace is not an excuse to sin. Jesus coming and walking on the earth and paying the price for our sin is not him lowering the goal so anybody can just, uh, anybody can just do whatever they want to. It's not him relaxing standards. Grace is not an excuse to sin. Rather, grace is an empowerment to live a righteous life. Listen, Jesus didn't come to lower the rim. He didn't come to relax the commandments. For the standard set forth in scripture, he didn't come and lower the goal so that anyone can dunk on it. He actually is going to give you supernatural power. He's going to transform you and strengthen you so that you can measure up to the full stature of Christ and so that you can dunk on the regulation size basketball goal. He's going to give you supernatural strength. 
It's not, it's not that the, the standards are relaxed. The standards will always be the standards. What God set forth in Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, those standards are always God's standards and God's will. But what does Jesus do with those standards, that Old Testament, the law and the prophets? 613 commands. What does he say about them? He says, I have not come to abolish them, but I have come to fulfill them. I've come to make them accomplish their purpose. So what does that mean? So I use my son as an example, but now I want to use my oldest daughter, Priscilla. In our house, uh, this is just a rule in our house. As long as you live under my roof, you're going to learn to play an instrument. <laughs> I don't, you, for the first 18 years of your life, you're going to play music. All right. That's just a rule. You got to do it. And <laughs> whenever you're 18 and you move out, you can do whatever you want. But let me ask you a question. Have you ever tried to learn an instrument? What are the first few weeks, months, and even years like? It's hard. It's hard because you're trying to teach your brain and your body something foreign, something it naturally does not do. So you can imagine the battles I have with Priscilla right now. She's seven years old. And to get her to practice, it's hard. It's so much easier just for her to uh, you know, chill out and watch YouTube videos rather than practice something that's foreign to her, something that doesn't come naturally. What are you doing? You're taking something that's not in your nature when you're learning an instrument and, you're, and you're, you're, you're practicing it over and over and again until it actually becomes in your nature. But you see, when you first start out, it's a little boring, it's a little hard because what are you doing? You're actually playing scales, what are, you, what are the basics? What is Priscilla learning right now? She's learning the base. She's learning scales. That's what you do over and over and over again. So she's just learning scales, right? Boring. You got to do your right hand, right? You just want to play music, but all you got is scales. <laughs> all right, then you got to do your left hand. And you just do this over and over and over again. And you do two hands together. Woo, how fun. <laughs> and then you go two octaves. I'm not going to do all that. You're already listening. You're already bored at just scales. But you do scales over and over and over again until you, what you're trying to do is you're trying to take something that's unnatural and make it natural. You're taking a building block and making it to where you can play those scales without looking at the piano, without thinking about it. It's called muscle memory. There's a guy, his name is Malcolm Gladwell. He wrote a book called Outliers. And in that book, you've probably heard of this. He coined the phrase, the 10,000 hour rule. Someone becomes an expert in something when they have done it, when they've practiced it, when they've internalized it, when they've spent 10,000 hours on that one thing. He references the Beatles. You know, the Beatles between 1960 and 1964, they played in clubs, nightclubs, all night long they would play. And in those four years, they ended up playing over 10,000 hours together. Why were the Beatles so good? Why were they so revolutionary? Because they had internalized, they had become experts. They had, they had totally taken what was outside of them and brought it into them. And now they're proficient in it. 
And so you see what you can do is once you've learned scales, once you get scales, then you can take the building blocks of the scales. You can take these notes and you can make them and turn them into harmonies and melodies. And you know, you can do things like this. And I'm not even a great piano player. There's a lot better than me, but you take those scales and those notes and you put them together and you can play beautiful. And all that, all that right there came from learning this. And so, when Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law to fulfill them. Listen, when I'm playing those chords, when I'm playing those notes, I'm never contradicting the scales. I'm using the scales for their intended purpose. The purpose of learning the scales, the point of learning the scales was so that I could later learn to play the chords and the melodies and the 613 commands that God gives us in the Old Testament. It's the scales, it's the basics, but they are what they are used for is they were used to point to that which is fulfilled. And Jesus takes the scales of the law and of the prophets and he puts it together and he begins to make beautiful kingdom music. So you see the scales, the, 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 the commandments, they never go away. But once you've learned the scales, you have fulfilled the purpose of the scales, which is to take you further. And so when Jesus says he's fulfilled the law, what's he saying? He's saying, I have so internalized this thing. This thing is so a part of me. The kingdom is in me. I'm bringing the kingdom with me. The scales point to me and the beautiful kingdom music that I can make with those scales. And then he goes on to say, unless you learn to play the beautiful kingdom music, unless you get past the scales, unless you get past the righteousness of the Pharisees, you can't even enter the kingdom of God. Boy, that statement at first glance can seem crushing because if you realize who the Pharisees and the scribes are, the Pharisees believed that the kingdom of God was gonna come about through strict adherence to the law or the Torah. They really thought that they were going to bring God's kingdom in and God was gonna vanquish his enemies if only they could live their lives pure enough and right enough. They so much believed in the laws in the Old Testament that they, they made laws about the laws. <laughs> they made, and and they, what they were doing is they were building a hedge around the written law and they were trying to guard people from messing with the Torah or breaking Torah out of ignorance or accident. And so they made rules for the rules. For instance, Jesus has conflicts with them all the time. And, and one, of it, one of the conflicts happens in Matthew 15 and Mark 7. The Pharisees ask, this is one of their rules on the rules. Why do your followers not follow our traditions? Why do they not wash their hands before they eat? And listen, this, this, this uh, question that the Pharisees have for Jesus and his followers has nothing to do with hygiene. Jesus is not against you washing your hands before you eat, trust me. The Pharisees, listen, the Pharisees would customarily wash themselves after visiting the marketplace because they believed they had come in contact with non-Jews, Gentiles, and because they had come in contact with non-Jews, then they had become defiled. And so they would wash themselves as if they were washing off the dirtiness of the Gentiles or the world around them. You see, Jesus confronts them 
And he says, your, your righteousness must exceed their laws. It has to go beyond these guys. And that seems quite impossible because they seem to be all about the law, way more than we are. How can we be more holy than the Pharisees? And Jesus said, look, they are so obsessed with the outside. They are only, they are obsessed with external things, with the washing of their hands. But Jesus says, you guys wash the outside of the cup, but the inside of the cup is filthy. He said, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. It looks great on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. Listen to me. Jesus did not come to make us just behave better. Jesus did not come to make us a bunch of do-gooders and try-harders. Does behavior matter? Absolutely behavior matters. But Jesus is about to do a new thing. He's, he's not concerned with just outward behavior or community conformity. Jesus is concerned with the actual condition of your heart. He doesn't just care about murder. He cares about the heart that is wicked and generates, the, it, it generates murder within itself, even the idea or the act of murder. Here's the righteousness that Jesus is after, not mere adherence to rules. He wants you to actually value what God values. He doesn't want you just to do holy things. He actually wants you to be holy. It's not just about obedience. That's a duty, but it's about following Jesus and the regulations that he lays out for our lives with joy. He wants us to be joyful and following his ways. How is he going to do that? Jeremiah 31, 30, it tells us. It says, but everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and Judah, not like the one I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Listen, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. What is Jesus saying? What did Jesus come to do? Jesus comes, he came because he doesn't want us just to do outward things. He wants to change us from the inside out. He wants to change you and I. He wants to give you a new heart. He wants to transform you. See, Jesus doesn't lower the standard. The standard is always the standard of the kingdom of God, but he gives you a transform heart so you can live out that standard. And so after Jesus says he doesn't come to abolish the law, he's fulfilled the law. He then in Matthew chapter five, he gives six, six examples he takes six commands from the Old Testament. And then he says, now let me give you an interpretation of that. Now listen, the Pharisees, they were the interpreters of the law. They were the keepers of the law. They lived their lives strict adherence to the law. But Jesus said, no, 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 no. I know this is what that says, but now let me tell you what I say. He starts off these six statements with, you've heard it said, but now hear what I say. Jesus is claiming authority over the law which ticked the Pharisees off. He's interpreting the Old Testament for us. So pay attention. He's not one of many voices among interpreters. He is the chief interpreter. And he always takes something that's external. And he says, now let me really show you what that means. The, the external is just the scale. 
It's just the individual boring notes up and down. But now let me show you what you can do with that scale. Let me show you the true meaning of this text. And this is what Jesus lays out for his community. Now, let me tell you something. Jesus is about to get in your business. (laughs) He is about to get up all in your business. And it hurts. It's painful. It's hard. But remember the the Sermon on the Mount, it's, it's how do we manifest the kingdom? How do we live out the kingdom here on earth? And Jesus is showing us what the community should look like. I don't have time to deal with all six today. I'm only gonna deal with two. I'm gonna deal with anger and I'm gonna deal with adultery. Both you will recognize from the 10 commandments, but Jesus, he enhances them. He opens our eyes to see the spirit of the law, not just the letter of the law. So let's start with the first one, anger. It says, you've heard it said that those of, those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders is liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there at the altar first and go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, each of these six things could be a sermon within itself. So I'm really just scratching the surface here on these issues. Jesus is letting us know, first of all, you're not simply a saint if you don't murder someone. (laughs) I think most of us in the room have that one covered. We haven't murdered anyone lately. He's letting us know, but that there's something deeper than the outward act of murder. But Jesus wants to deal with the anger and the resentment that you allow to fester in your heart that leads to such outward actions. The things you say, the contempt you have, the way you assassinate someone's character, all of these things matter to him. So here's, here, here is what this does not mean. It does not mean you're never going to be anger or angry <laughs> because anger is a real emotion. Anger is communicating something to us. When we're angry, what is that communicating? Usually it's communicating to us that someone has crossed a boundary line. A value that you have in your life has been violated by someone. Someone has stepped over the line. Paul says in Ephesians, be angry but do not sin. I mean, when Jesus comes in and he flips tables over, I would say Jesus was pretty angry (laughs) at that moment. We're not trying to free ourselves from emotions. These are natural emotions when a boundary has been crossed. But here's what we are trying to do. We have to steward our emotions. We have to channel the anger in the right direction. And we have to, we can't hang on to it. We've got to learn to channel it and release it. What is the wrong direction? Let me tell you what the wrong direction is. It's wrong when, you, when someone's crossed the line with you, when someone's crossed the boundary, here's what's wrong. You can't let it fester in your heart. 
And then you begin to speak evil against that person. According to these scriptures, listen to me, words are not free. I know in this country we value free speech, but the truth is words are never free. Words cost us something. Not just words spoken, but also words that we text. Also words that we post online, on the internet. Because here's what Jesus says. You can not only just murder people physically, but you can actually murder people with your mouth. (laughs) Ouch, ouch. Jesus is stepping on our toes today. He's stepping on our toes. You can't let anger sit there. You can't have contempt and let things come out of your mouth about other brothers and sisters in Christ, even if they did something they were not supposed to do. We must be careful because Jesus tells us in the scripture, we will be held accountable for the way we use our words. So what are we supposed to do when we're angry? First of all, Jesus gives an example of if you're going to, if you're at worship, if you've come to the temple to worship and, and you realize that there's a, there's a rift, there's a tear in a relationship, he says, leave the gift at the altar and go and be reconciled. Now, this is, this, is, this is tough. And what does this tell us? Uh, one thing I want you to realize is, and we have to fight against this, in our, in our Western society, we think our faith is very private. We think it's very individualized. We think it's about our very personal, private relationship with the Lord. But right here, Jesus says, no, 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 no. The relationship you have with your brothers and sisters in Christ directly affects the relationship you have with me. (laughs) First John says it this way, in no way can you hate another brother in Christ or sister in Christ and say that you love God. That's not true. John says, you have murder in your heart. You can't hate someone else and love God. The two are actually very connected. Our worship of God and our love for one another are connected. This isn't a private faith. It's a communal faith. And he says, if you're at the temple, where is the temple? The temple's in Jerusalem. So more than likely, if you're at the temple, you walked five days to get to the temple you walk from somewhere else. You're living on the outskirts like Bethlehem and you're coming to the temple. You walk five days and God says, no, 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 turn around and walk back out. <laughs> That's how important this is. Go deal with the issue. Here's what I know the truth is though. Sometimes it's easier to walk five days to the temple to worship than it is to simply walk across the room and apologize for any wrong you've caused. Jesus is in our business today. And then he tells a story about if you're going to court, settle it quickly with your accuser. What do we do with anger? We don't let it fester. We gotta settle it quickly. We gotta settle the matter quickly. Why? Because if you don't settle it quickly, you're gonna pay a price for a very long time. When someone wounds us, the wounds are very real. You're watching today, the words that have been spoken to you are very real. The promises that were broken are very real. The pain that was caused is so real. Boundaries were crossed. You were injured. But listen to me, please, I'm begging you. Don't let the person further injure you by destroying your life because you're hanging on to an anger and a bitterness towards them. You have to forgive. You have to release. You have to take responsibility within your own heart because your spirit is your responsibility. It's yours, no one else's. 
The Bible says, be angry and do not sin. And after that says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. You deal with it quickly. Do not give the devil a foothold. Here's what I know about anger. It's one of the number one ways the enemy has an open door to operate in our lives. I've seen it time and time again. People that have just been hurt and they hang on to it and it destroys their life. It distorts their view of everything, distorts their view of God and other people and their lives are destroyed. We have to deal with the anger. Number two, adultery. Verse 27, it says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body to go into hell. So listen, Jesus says, not only can you commit murder with your mouth, but you can commit adultery with your eyes, but it's all connected to your heart. So what is Jesus saying? Jesus does not, of course, he's not referring to passing attraction. The Greek tense here, it, it, it means if you are deliberately harboring a desire for an illicit relationship. It means you're staring, you're looking upon someone, you're thinking about them in a, an illicit way. There's beautiful people in the world, okay? There just are, you're gonna notice them. Martin Luther puts it this way, you cannot keep a bird from flying over your head, but you can keep it from building a nest in your hair. We're surrounded by beautiful people all the time. Attractions happen, but here's what can't happen. You can't sit there and let that, just like anger can't fester in your heart, you can't let that thought fester in your heart. We have to be ruthless in the elimination of lust in our lives. You know, there was an awesome man of God that used to come to church here, and I just remember this, this is a funny story. Um, he passed away a few years ago. He was a council member here. His name was Gary Grimes. And Gary was just, he was the best hearted person you ever met. Uh, Gary had a glass eye. And I just remember one time he was teaching this, this right here, this same uh, scripture to a group of men about if your eye offends you, then pluck it out. And no one, most of the people in the room didn't know Gary had a glass eye. And so he said, now guys, this is what you got to do. And Gary stuck his finger in his eye socket and he, he popped out that glass eyeball and he held it up. He said, you see, this is what Jesus is calling us to do. I'll never forget that. That was hilarious. You know, the problem is if you pluck out one eye, you still got the other one. <laughs> if you cut off one arm, you still got the other one. I, I don't want people showing up to church next week missing a few limbs because Jesus obviously knows he's not talking about an eye or a hand. He's really talking about your heart. He's talking about your heart. And he's talking about the difference between lust and love. I love this thought from Craig Keener. Listen to this. He says, lust is antithetical to true love. It dehumanizes another person into an object of passion, leading us to act as if the other were a visual or emotional prostitute for our use. 
Fueled by selfish passion, adultery violates the sanctity of another person's being and relationships. Love, by contrast, seeks what is best for a person, including strengthening their marriage. Adultery usually involves considerable rationalization, justifying one's behavior as necessary or even loving. But lust is the mother of adultery the demonic force that allows human beings to justify exploiting one another sexually, at the same time betraying the most intimate of commitments where trust ought to abide secure, even if it can flourish nowhere else. Lust demands possession, love values, respects, seeks to serve one another with what is genuinely good for them. It's always incompatible with acknowledging God as the supreme desire of our hearts because it's contrary to his will. Listen, I want to talk to the men for just a second, because if you read this scripture, what you're noticing is Jesus is directly addressing men. Not that women can't struggle with lust, because I know that that is very possible. It's primarily addressed to men. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying the kingdom of God should be the safest place for women anywhere in the world. In a world where women are constantly objectified, this should be a safe place where women are not seen as objects for our pleasure. They don't exist for our pleasure, but rather they are sisters and mothers in Christ. This is a tall order. This is, <laughs> you might be thinking, man, that's not even possible. How can I? And you might have anger raging through your body right now. You might have lust raging through your body right now. You might think, gosh, what am I to do? These, what Jesus is saying, it seems impossible. It doesn't seem like not only did Jesus not lower the standard, it feels like he raised the basketball goal from 10 foot to 12 foot. What do we do? But I want you to remember, Jesus is the musical genius. He takes the scales of the Old Testament and he makes beautiful harmonies and melodies and music with the scales. Jesus is the great conductor who wrote the greatest symphony of all time. And you and I, we're the musicians. We're captivated by his composition. And we now perform it before a world full of other noise and chaos. The kingdom came with Jesus, but it will fully come when all the world and all of creation finally joins in the song. It must be Jesus's music. This is why we can't lower the standard because Jesus didn't lower the standard. And the only way that we are going to be sure that we're playing his music is this, we need his presence. We need his grace. We need his empowering presence. Remember these words of Jesus. Remember that his words, as they're coming out, they're transformative words. Remember that Jesus said, if you wanna get in the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. I'm not saying you won't ever struggle with anger. I'm not saying you won't ever struggle with lust. Here's what I'm saying is that Jesus wants to transform your heart today. If you're addicted to things like pornography, he's telling you be ruthless with cutting that out of your life. Find some trusted brothers and sisters in Christ that you can share that with and they can help you get out of that mess. You must be ruthless in eliminating anger and lust because the kingdom of God, it manifests itself not with those things but when we have clean hands and pure hearts that come from his presence. 
That's where I'm at with all of this as we study this. I, it, what this does when I study this, it brings me to my knees and it makes me say, oh God, I cannot do this on my own. I can't white knuckle it, grin and bear it, try harder. That's not possible. What I need is a transformation from the inside out. And that's what I want for you today. Maybe you could pray. Ask the Lord to transform your heart. Father, I pray for your people today. God, you didn't come to lower the standard. You fulfilled the standard. You took the 613 commands. You took the scales. You internalized it. And you made beautiful, beautiful music with it. And now you're calling us as your followers to follow in your footsteps and to do the same. God, I pray for transformed hearts. I pray we would be a community where we're not divided and broken in our relationships, but we're reconciled to one another. I pray we would be a community where we don't objectify one another, but we truly love and value the other person as you do. See them as people. Help us not to dehumanize one another. This is only possible when our hearts are transformed by you. So we ask for transformation today. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray. Hey, thank you for watching today. Hopefully you're enjoying this Sermon on the Mount series. And uh, next week, we got four more of these that we're gonna hit. And it's also Father's Day. So hey, come uh, hang with us at the Crossing 9 and 11 for Father's Day or also 10 a.m. right here. Church, we love you and we'll see you soon.